My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. I think had some frustrations of what they experienced and much of that frustration laid on the fact that they felt that decision makers wanted to move on as if this didn't happen. People's response was, thank you, because we can't forget what we went through. And this is an opportunity for us to do some kind of collective remembering. That's the voice of Debbie Owusu-Acha. She and Gael Moderi are today's guests on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. In February 2022, the so-called convoy protest descended on Ottawa and went on to occupy its downtown for weeks. The narrative coming from the protesters was that this was a spontaneous uprising, primarily by truckers, against vaccine mandates, a narrative that the mainstream media has often uncritically reproduced, particularly in the protests' early weeks. However, it's not a narrative that proved able to stand up to much scrutiny, and not just because of the protests' relatively minor connection to actual truckers. Admittedly, genuine discontent related to the pandemic and to the government's handling of it combined with actively propagated misinformation to give the protests' messaging a substantial reach. But it was clear pretty much from the start that the protest was being driven by organizers with a range of connections to far-right and white nationalist politics, presumably as a way to recruit more people into their sphere of influence. Indeed, this was only the latest in a series of much less successful convoy protests with other focuses organized by such figures in earlier years. The occupation's impacts on residents of Ottawa were profound. The lives of those living in the city's downtown were utterly disrupted, and particularly many who are black, indigenous, racialized, disabled, and or LGBTQ+, reported feeling unsafe in their own neighborhoods during the occupation, and frustrated by the seeming inability or unwillingness of governments and institutions to do anything about it. So both during the convoy occupation and since, community members in Ottawa have been doing their best to organize and mobilize themselves to support each other, to voice their dissatisfaction with both the convoy and the government, and to do what needs to be done. In the aftermath of the convoy, a number of official investigations and commissions were promised, most visibly the official inquiry into the Liberal government's invocation of the Emergencies Act, which is currently ongoing. Many Ottawa residents do not see any of these as having the scope to truly give voice to the experiences of those who bore the brunt of the occupation, or to arrive at the kinds of recommendations that might address the underlying issues. So out of the grassroots conversations and mutual aid networks that emerged during the occupation, a group of local residents with the support of a number of smaller local institutions, most prominently the community health centre in the area, have launched their own Ottawa People's Commission on the Convoy Occupation. The People's Commission is a grassroots, nonpartisan effort to chronicle what happened during and after the convoy, and what failed to happen, as well as the impacts of those things on residents. They've been holding public hearings, in person and online, since September, collecting testimonies from residents. They're holding community consultations with groups that were particularly affected, such as Asian seniors, people living in shelters, black, indigenous, and Muslim communities, and queer and trans folk. 
and they've been offering a range of other ways for people to share their experiences in safe settings, including privately and in writing. Debbie Owusu-Acha and Gael Moderi are longtime residents of Ottawa. Owusu-Acha is the executive director of a national nonprofit dealing with LGBTQ issues, and she's been active in both organizational and grassroots ways around gender-based violence, queer and trans issues, police violence, and racial justice. She's one of the commissioners in the People's Commission. Muderi has worked in communications for both governments and community groups and lived in the area directly impacted by the convoy, and they're the project coordinator for the commission. Along with Owusu Acha, the other three commissioners are former Secretary General of Amnesty International Canada, Alex Neve, former United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Right to Housing, Leilani Farha, and award-winning author and human rights activist, Monia Mazig. Public hearings and other methods of collecting public testimony will continue into December, and the process of producing a final report will begin in January. I speak with Owusu Acha and Muderi about the Ottawa convoy occupation, its impacts on residents, and the work of the Ottawa People's Commission. My name is Gael Muderi, my pronouns are she and they, and I am the project coordinator for the Ottawa People's Commission. The Ottawa People's Commission is a grassroots, nonpartisan response to the trucker convoy occupation that happened in February 2022, where local residents were traumatized by the three and a half week convoy occupation on our city. And the community is in need of healing and justice. So we are chronicling what happened and what failed to happen during and after the convoy, as well as the impact specifically on residents, workers, and businesses. I am a longtime Ottawa resident. I've been living in Ottawa for the last 14 years. Specifically during the convoy occupation, I was living in the downtown core. I no longer do, but that is one of the reasons that the Ottawa People's Commission is so important to me and why I wanted to be a part of it. Prior to that, I've been working in the downtown core of Ottawa for about six years. My background is in communications with various community organizations and local nonprofits, as well as the federal government. My name is Debbie Owusu-Acha. I use she, her pronouns, and I am a resident here in Ottawa. I've been living here for the last 12 years. I am an executive director of a nonprofit by day, but sometimes in the evening, I moonlight as a commissioner for the Ottawa People's Commission. I have a mix of experience working or organizing on multiple levels. I currently work at a national nonprofit that works on LGBTQ issues, particularly from a youth perspective. But prior to that, I worked as a campaigner for Oxfam Canada. So I have a lot of experience in the gender justice sector. I've been involved in some grassroots organizing here in Ottawa for the last 12 years. A lot of it rooted on gender-based violence prevention, but then also looking at creating safer spaces for queer people, but particularly queer women, I was a longtime organizer of the Ottawa Dyke March, and I've also been someone who's been organizing on addressing racial justice in the community and helped organize one of the biggest marches we ever had, speaking to police brutality in the city. And I've been very much involved in advocating for justice for many Black, Indigenous, and racialized people in Ottawa who continue to be over-policed. I was very vocal in pointing out the discrepancy and the hypocrisy in the city's response to different forms of dissent. You know, we've had examples of Black and Indigenous folks organizing again around police brutality that were responded to by the police very harshly. 
And then we saw in comparison the lack there of a response during the occupation. And so I've been talking about it and encouraging others to engage on the conversation. And that's what's brought me to the commission. And being a commissioner, I'm in a position with three other commissioners, Alex Neve, Leilani Farha, and Monia Mazig, where we're essentially in a role to listen to community members, document what they say, and then to develop a report that will have some recommendations that we hope will help inform policy around situations like this, but then to also have this report be almost like an archival piece to document what actually happened and what people experienced during that three-week occupation. Lay out your initial understanding of the events and impacts of the occupation as context for thinking about the work of the commission to deepen that understanding. In late January, there was a lot of discussion around a cross-Canada trucker convoy coming to Ottawa. We've been told it's in response to COVID-19 measures or mandates that looked at mandatory masking or vaccines. Some truckers felt like their work was being impacted by a vaccine mandate they felt was an overreach of some sort. However, many people who have dealt with the frustrations of mandates, and I think it's safe to say that all of us have been impacted by COVID-19 and various measures. However, there is a certain subsect of the population whose frustrations were a little elevated because of a variety of reasons. It could be distrust of the vaccine medication, a distrust of the federal government itself, a misunderstanding on which mandates were being mandated at different levels of government. However, that created essentially the perfect storm for this mass mobilization. And what we saw very early on was the fact that the GoFundMe to support this action grew into the millions. It was a very well-resourced protest, quote-unquote, And so the media, but then also folks within the movement who've been doing grassroots intelligence work for a long time, we're kind of tracking the different movements of these trucks from various parts of the country. I think it's important to note that from the grassroots side of things, a lot of us who have been tracking white supremacists, especially the white supremacists who are very much so involved in the the trucker convoy, and that's another piece to this, knew that this protest was a little bit more than just vaccine mandates and that there was something a little bit more insidious behind the trucks and what their presence might mean in Ottawa, because this is not the first time we've seen a similar type of political performance happen. There was an attempt at a convoy, I would say 2019, and this was in response to, I believe, the carbon tax. Nothing like what we saw in February, of course, much smaller in scale, The ideology and the rhetoric that was also behind this are the same ideology and rhetoric we see within fascist and white supremacist movements across the country that many social activists have been ringing the alarm on. This was also a thing behind the convoy. The trucks had arrived in that last weekend of January at a very, very large, well-organized mobilization in our downtown core. The communication from the municipality very much so frustrated people. You know, don't go downtown. Almost trying to frame this as just like, it's just a jubilant protester show. It'll be over soon. And what we quickly realized was that these trucks were not leaving after the weekend was done. And it goes back again to those who were in the movement, who've been doing grassroots intelligence. We all knew that this was not going to be a short-lived thing. 
these trucks placed themselves strategically in different parts of downtown. They had a base camp in the Overbrook neighborhood, which is near where I live, where you could see these trucks bringing in materials. It was essentially a staging ground, which was indication that they're going to be here for a very long time. That's when I think you saw community frustration. We then saw disarray from leadership in how to handle the situation. There were different periods during the occupation. There was the time where the mayor went into negotiation and that failed. There was the tracking of jerry cans of gas being brought in downtown. And then that's where we saw the images of the police either high-fiving or kind of taking a blind eye to this. There were people who were tracking the times that they would call the police for all the bylaw infractions that were happening with no response. And then it just grew and grew and grew until we were at this critical point where the chief of police at the time, Peter Slowly, who was Ottawa's first Black police chief, left his position. And that also sparked some disarray and dysfunction within our city hall. The police board also had people leave or resign or quit or be kicked out. And around mid to late February, the federal government stepped in and that announcement came that they were enacting for the first time the Emergency Measures Act. And that's when we all witnessed the mobilization of police services from across the province to push these truckers out of the city. And I like to frame the Emergency Measures Act and quote unquote, it's success, question mark as being a small moment of anxiety relief for the people of downtown, because although the truckers and the more egregious form of their occupation is no longer here downtown, there was very much so examples and remnants of the occupation still in the city. How did the commission emerge from this context? If you take a deeper look at what actually was happening within community, you would have saw that community were taking the lead in what we would assume our leaders would have been taking in terms of giving people information, letting people know where not to go based off the presence of hateful, racist, white supremacist iconography, which was also littered throughout this entire convoy occupation, as well as people mobilizing to do safe walks, people mobilizing to do mutual aid. These were all happening at the same time. And what also popped up and that I also was part of were that people were taking advantage of online spaces where they can converse almost like miniature digital community town halls. These online forums, these community focused spaces were an opportunity for us to share information, mobilize, but then to also come together to talk about what are you seeing? What are you experiencing? And I think that was an indication that community needed those spaces that were for us, by us, to basically outline what we were experiencing because we weren't feeling heard by all of the people who are essentially elected to hear us, to give us some semblance of protection and are supposed to make decisions that are supposed to correct what we saw. And so I think those moments during the actual occupation itself provided almost like a theoretical reasoning behind an actual formalized grassroots People's Commission. The idea to actually have a People's Commission originated with Ken Rubin, who is a community advocate and investigative researcher. 
and essentially joined with a dynamic group of local residents from diverse backgrounds like nonprofit organizations and other community associations related to small businesses, people with backgrounds in municipal politics to form a group to steer the direction of what the Ottawa People's Commission would become. Everyone sort of leveraged their relationships within the city to reach out to different groups that had been differently affected and to pull together the resources. One of our biggest supporters is the community health center here at Centertown in Ottawa. That is essentially the anchor agency that provides the administrative infrastructure, the infrastructure for us to receive donations. How the Ottawa People's Commission is actually reaching out to folks to collect these stories and create a timeline, as well as recommendations for action. We're providing different forums to reach out to people for them to come forward with their experiences. We've been holding public hearings in person and online since September, where we hear testimonies from local residents. Members of the community can attend to hear those stories firsthand, and those are uploaded to YouTube for anyone who wishes to watch. We also are conducting community consultations specifically with communities who were particularly affected, like Asian seniors, people living in shelters, members of the Indigenous community, members of the Black community, the Muslim community, 2SLBGTQ folks who were particularly affected by this on top of the systemic issues that they face in Ottawa and in Canada in general. So we've been partnering with local community organizations to host these consultations in spaces that are accessible and that feel safe to these communities with the understanding that not everyone is comfortable speaking publicly also. So we are also offering private hearings for those who request them, as well as accepting submissions in writing, all with the idea of compiling all of these to make recommendations for the report we hope to release next year. So why a grassroots people's commission rather than either working with the existing and planned government inquiries or mobilizing pressure for a different kind of government inquiry? The reason why the Ottawa People Commission is needed is because the scope of the inquiries currently happening at the federal level as well as at the municipal level is limited in its ambition and in its ability to hear from a wide array of residents who were affected. These inquiries that are currently happening are largely focusing on the response of the city in terms of what they did or did not do, the use of the Emergency Measures Act. There hasn't been a venue offered for residents who were negatively affected to speak to the traumas and losses that they had and to hold to account the officials that were not able to guarantee their public health and safety at that time. What kinds of responses did you see from the community to the idea of the People's Commission? I think when we first announced that this was coming out, I was really happy to see what the response was from community, that this was needed and that they saw that this was filling a gap. Many people, I think, had some frustrations of what they experienced and much of that frustration laid on the fact that they felt that whether it was the city, the country, decision makers wanted to move on as if this didn't happen. What I saw was people's response was, thank you, because we can't forget what we went through. And this is an opportunity for us to do some kind of collective remembering. Yes, that sentiment of gratitude is absolutely echoed through all the correspondence we've received, through our contact form on our website, through the written submissions we've had, and especially from folks who initially hadn't thought to come forward, but perhaps saw us live tweeting about one of our hearings or saw one of our videos on YouTube 
overwhelmingly people are coming forward and thanking us for creating this venue for them to express their experience and to share the impact it had on them. And given the role that various far-right and white supremacist formations played in the convoy itself, have you seen any kind of active opposition from those sources to the work that the Commission is doing? Absolutely. As much as we have the overwhelming support of those who have come forward and those who have reached out to us, we certainly see the rise of online harassment and of folks expressing their fear to come forward due to the online harassment that has taken place surrounding the subject of the convoy occupation. We also are aware that anything that we share on social media is being contested by those who support the aims and the actions of the convoy occupation. So we're definitely seeing that side of the argument being represented on social media and actively trying to participate in the hearings. We have offered a space for those who support the convoy occupation to speak to their experience, and we have been willing to hear from them as long as it happens in a context of respect and of validation of other people's experiences. So we've been able to provide that space, but it's certainly not something that we take for granted that people will continue to peacefully engage with us when they disagree. Among the content that you've heard from Ottawa residents so far about their experience of the convoy, what has most stood out to you or surprised you, or what have you particularly learned from? One example of this was one of our most recent online hearings we had, which focused on folks with disabilities, whether this was physical, mental. The six testimonies that we heard that evening were by far the most, I don't want to say the most impactful because everybody's been sharing impactful testimonies, but there's just something about looking at it from the perspective of disability justice and how deeply embedded the ableism is to the very infrastructure of the city, from our road design to people's access to services, but even in the response to supporting community needs, the ableism was there. And what I think really stood out, one of the things that really showed across all of the testimonies we've heard, is how community was filling the gap of protection and support. But when we're talking about disabled people going out of their way to support their community, community members who were also disabled, who were creating through very little means, especially those who are on ODSB, going over and beyond to make sure that their neighbors and community members were also protected. And our city didn't think to respond to some of the most marginalized people in our communities who physically need support to maneuver our town whose you know illnesses were exacerbated due to the fumes and the noise those who have mental health crises that increase as a result of the fear that the occupation instilled in them we really failed these people and i'm going to even say we because those of us who might not be impacted the same way when it comes to disability also have a role to play in the systematic changes we need to see at the city level at the very minimum, the community level, there are so many lessons to be learned just from that hearing in itself that completely blew my mind and has completely, I would say, affirmed the reason why I think the Ottawa People's Commission needs to exist. What's the timeline for the Commission's remaining work? We're holding our public hearings as well as the community consultations until the end of the year. We hope to have an interim report available early next year. 
And the second phase of the work starting January next year will focus on finalizing that report. What impacts do you hope that the report and the overall work of the commission will have? I think a key piece to the report, and it's been something that myself and my co-commissioners have been making sure that we ask about when we hear different testimonies, including testimonies from those who are sympathetic to the convoy, was around recommendations from the community perspective, recommendations on how they would like to see decision makers respond to similar instances to minimize the harmful impact it has on community. We're hoping what will come out of this report will be recommendations for action for the city, for different levels of government, for the police, anyone who was accountable to the public for their safety and health at that time. That is who we are hoping to recommend different ways of approaching this in the future should it happen again, when it happens again, as Debbie mentioned. We're seeing echoes of the movement. It's not quite over in this city. So we're hoping that from that, the new city council specifically here in Ottawa will take action and come up with ways to address the existing gaps for different members of the community, as well as addressing this very specific movement that we're seeing in Canada. So one of the striking things for me during the occupation, observing from a distance, was a real division among people who were detrimentally impacted by it. Some were saying things that suggested they see policing, more policing, better policing as the answer, while others were recognizing that there are all kinds of problems that come with calling for more policing as a solution to this kind of thing. Are you hearing similar dynamics in the testimony? And in a preliminary way, what's your sense of what it might mean to navigate that tension moving forward? Those tensions were definitely evident as, you know, Ottawa residents communicating with each other, but also it's been a common theme in the testimonies as well. And I think what has been an interesting thing to observe, and I'm speaking as someone who has a lived experience as a Black queer person, is that we are noticing that some people who may have been indifferent to calls to look at policing from a critical lens have finally caught up (laughs) and finally get it based off what they experienced in not having the police respond to them when they were in a moment of crisis. I don't want to frame this as like a aha, gotcha moment, but I do think there's something to be said about people experiencing this for the first time and that shifting the way they think about this particular institution that all of us are taught to buy into from the moment we were born. In terms of what it means for a solution to it, we will see. But I do think that that is a key thing for us to continue to look at. And with even the current conversation that's happening with the Emergency Measures Act, I have people in my community who are some of the most rad people in the world who have to check themselves because they were like, why am I happy that there was a police response to a protest? And I think it's across all political thoughts, political identities, et cetera, where people are questioning what our relationship to policing actually is. And is policing the only response to something like this? What other options are there available? I think the report will probably also, if not answer these questions, I think maybe open up a different conversation as well, which I think I'm looking forward to. You have been listening to my interview with Debbie Owusuwacha and Gael Moderi of the Ottawa People's Commission on the Convoy Occupation. To learn more about the commission and about how to participate, go to opc-cpo 
www.talkingradical.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. <laughs>